0: And Stan here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by uh, a repeat offender, Dr. David Tallon, who has been one of, part of one of our uh, COVID podcasts, one of the earlier COVID podcasts. And we welcome today Dr. Paul Alwarter as well. Um, we're covering both ends of the United States spectrum with experience from UCLA as well as Johns Hopkins, so um, the Far East and Far West. And I'll just uh, bring up the, uh, it's not even the middle, I'm anywhere more close to the middle here, but at least one third across the way. But what we wanted to talk about. And if COVID wasn't enough, you know, you see all those uh, memes that are out there about, you know, July, who had this for, you know, who had killer hornets for July or whatnot. Um, But one thing we do have to keep in mind is that flu season is right around the corner. And when we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, there is clear signs that this is going to be pushing through uh, into well into the um, flu season this year and probably even beyond that. Uh, But that's going to pose significant challenge, significant issues. So we thought this was a great time to pull folks together to get an idea of where we are with flu season, uh, 2019, excuse me, 2020, 2021, uh, especially with regard to COVID-19. So, um, we got together a couple of experts here to lay down the law and kind of get us on the path as we move quickly through summer 2020 and getting close to flu season. So gentlemen, thank you for joining us here on ASAP Frontline. I want to start off before we get into the topic of influenza by letting Dr. Talon and Dr. Alwarder introduce themselves, give some of the background, as I mentioned, we're covering both ends of our continent here from sea to shining sea. And so let's get a little background on who the we will start off with Dr. Tallon since he's in the top left of the zoom window here.
1: Okay, well, well, thanks, Ryan. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, and I hope most of you know me in the audience of emergency physicians, um, I'm an emergency physician out in California. I've spent my career teaching, doing research in patients at UCLA. Um, My background's different in that um, I'm trained not only in emergency medicine, but also in infectious diseases. And I've sort of spent my career looking at that. Intersection. Um, so, um, you know, my favorite hobbies are like uh, road bike, um, biking, uh, hiking. Um, I like to hold hands and walk on the beach, things like that. So, <laughs> so um, that's me.
0: And, and now for Dr. Alwerter, or back in the motherland, Dr. Alwerter.
2: Yes. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Yeah. So I, I'm a, a native New Yorker, but have been at Johns Hopkins for too long uh, <laughs> uh, since 1988. Um, I'm like David, an infectious disease physician, but I still do a bit of primary care, which keeps me honest. And I'll say, to pay off my student loans, I moonlighted uh, in an emergency room, and by God, that is tough. I'm. I really. It's an amazing job everyone does as emergency room physicians. Um, But I'm the clinical director for Infectious Disease Division uh, in Baltimore. We have pretty big faculty, 72 people. So it's a lot of moving pieces. I also run something called the Johns Hopkins Antibiotic Guide, which does clinical decision support that I know a lot of primary care ED docs and others might use and have always done some research in respiratory diseases and quite wrapped up in COVID right now.
0: Interestingly, um, if you want to know what the qualifications are for being involved in this podcast, is it some sort of connection to the horse industry with Dr. Talon, uh, with his wife, who's very much into the horse industry, and apparently Dr. Alwerder who worked, uh, who got suckered into who moonlighting a preakness shift uh, up there? Well, Baltimore. not only
2: that, uh, Ryan, we I had horses growing up. We had Tennessee Walkers and... Uh, and a couple of others, so um, don't have them now. But that's how I grew up. Yes, my, I just
1: want to say my wife is expert at horse riding and three-day eventing, and she's specializing in orthopedic injuries.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's the that's the key to being in Kentucky is you have to have a fond love for bourbon, for horses, and for orthopedic surgeons because those are the three things we actually really support here uh, in the bluegrass state.
2: So you, uh, drink, you know, uh, yeah, you drink a lot of you drink a lot of bourbon, get on a horse, and then you, you call the orthopedist.
0: I mean anything that was that was made it that made it through prohibition as a medicine, as a medicinal, that's gotta be all right. Flu, of course, is, is something we deal with every year. It's kind of got this um, infectious disease fatigue with the American culture that thinks that flu is not a big deal. And, of course, everybody's seen uh, all the comparisons this year um, with COVID-19 of saying, no, it's no worse than the flu. But, of course, flu is, is the cause of death for tens of thousands of Americans every single year and hundreds of thousands, if not more, around the world. Um, give us some of the things about flu and some of the stuff that makes this um, puts those at higher risk for complications associated with the flu? Um,
1: yeah, Paul, I think I'll take this one. Sure. So um, uh, we, we know that flu kills a lot of people, it, it hospitalizes many more. And uh, it's, it's pretty clear that there are certain types of patients who are at greater risk of complications and death. And these are important for emergency physicians to be aware of because they're part of guidelines by the Centers for Disease Control, the Infectious Disease Society of America that help guide your consideration regarding treatment. So the high-risk groups, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so Paul, you chime in if I screw this up or miss one. Um, the, the elderly, which I am very hesitant to define as uh, greater than 65 years of age, People with significant comorbidities, like diabetes, but then some others that aren't necessarily organ-related that we might forget, like severe obesity, BMI over 40, um, young patients, children under five, particularly under two years of age, and pregnant women, um, but not only pregnant women, including those who are two weeks postpartum. And then you, you know, you there's sort of a big grab bag of sort of other like that aren't specifically listed, but I think that would count like end-stage renal or liver disease, certainly a transplant patient, uh, and then actually certain ethnic groups like uh, Native American Indians. So you get the idea. Um, Those those are people we should really worry about, not only for infection in general, but when the epidemiology of, of the flu suggests that flu might be in the differential diagnosis, We need to remember those groups because they're uh, important targets to consider treatment.
2: Yeah, Yeah, David, I I think you hit all the the ones and I I think what may be confusing coming into the fall is we're gonna have COVID-19 and we're gonna have influenza. Now, luckily the people at high risk pretty much overlap. There are a couple of interesting distinctions. Uh, One is that children under five and especially infants are really prone to severe influenza. That's really not the case with COVID, except for the infants. So the kids from one to five, you don't have to worry so much about, but the reality is we're going to have to be evaluating both. Uh, and it and the obesity uh, one is, we learned 10 years ago in the pandemic that that's a BMI of over 40, but for COVID, it looks like it's a BMI over 30. So I think otherwise they're pretty similar groups so you, those are the main distinctions i worry about but as we head into this you know last season this pandemic early on we had more flu than covid rapidly shifted right and it was interesting just a quick story uh you know in japan where they wear masks much more regularly than we do uh the rates of influenza dropped dramatically once they knew there was covid in the mix from china so it'll be interesting to sort of see if that really helps on the flu side, as well as how good we are wearing masks in the general population for this coming respiratory
0: season. You guys talked about some of those interesting risk factors that we see with flu. And of course we see the extremes of age with influenza um, and it's always been uh, been that way. At least we we expect that you know the farther you get from the middle, um, it, it's gonna be the higher risk factors. But then with COVID this year, that adds another curveball, And I know a lot of hospitals stopped testing for flu back in about in 2009, you know, with with H1N1 when that came through and started having the cross-reactivity with a lot of the rapid tests. And so a lot were just, if you come in, it looks like the flu, acts like the flu, you know, quacks and walks like a duck kind of stuff, that's what it's gonna be. But this year we're throwing COVID in there, which does have a little bit different risk uh, categories A little bit different in terms of the pandemic right now. Um, With that in mind, you know, when we first had COVID, we said, you test for all this stuff. So you do your viral panel. If one of them's positive, you're done, that it doesn't exist with other viruses. And then, of course, we found out that's not necessarily the case. We're seeing a lot of that are flagging with flu A, flu B. My first one that I had was a flu B and COVID put together. How are we going, what are some of the tips and ways we can tell that difference as we get into this fall and start to see the flu numbers start to pick up again?
1: Paul, well, you I'll, take that one. Yeah, sure, I'll this jump is, in here. This is a hard question. I'm yeah. <laughs> you. You're just going <laughs> for the softballs.
2: Uh, so, Ryan, I, I don't think you can honestly tell because there, we're learning that COVID has asymptomatic states, mild upper respiratory States. I mean, initially, everyone sort of thinks of it as the ground glass infiltrates, you know, hitting the ED with, you know, a significant hypoxemia in a third of patients. Uh, and uh, the, main, the main distinguishing feature to me is the fact that COVID doesn't hit you like a Mack truck, like influenza, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with sort of just coming on like gangbusters. It's a little slower, but but you're not likely hitting the door with hypoxemia as much as you are with COVID. So if you have someone hitting the door, unless if they're pretty long in the illness and have a secondary pneumonia with pneumonia, uh, with a bacterial pneumonia, you're, you're probably looking more at COVID. And I, I think as you go into the fall, no one knows what's going to have a higher frequency, but because people still don't have any immunity, my bet is you're going to see more COVID than influenza. But Ryan, you're exactly right. Some early experience from March from Stanford uh, University found 20% of their isolates had co-infections, mostly viral with them. And so I think we're gonna have both and the diagnostics are we're gonna be looking at the top three, flu, COVID, and probably RSV as we head into this next season. And we just got to look at all of those because not only is their treatments different, but infection control for COVID of course uh, is gonna be more rigorous than the other two. You now I had
1: an interesting call with <laughs> on another study with some Investigators from New Zealand, and um, I—you re- might think of New Zealand. You might because uh, it is one country where they have virtually eliminated COVID cases, right? Like a whole country, and um, and and that's also where Ruth Bader Ginsburg said said she might move depending on the result of the last election. I guess Canada wasn't far enough, anyhow. So, um, but I want to get into that. You know, um, she did say that. But so they're in their winter months now, right? Summer here, opposite side of the world. And they said, again, remember they've, they've basically eliminated COVID. So they're very, very careful with their social distancing, um, wearing masks, things like that. And um, or they have been. And they're saying that they're seeing very, very low rates of RSV and flu now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, think I about it. It's the same mechanisms to transmit it. So, you know, if you can flatten the curve for COVID, potentially you could flatten the curve for these other diseases, Uh, you know, vaccination wouldn't hurt. Uh, That's something we have to keep working on, especially in this country. Um, So anyhow, we'll, we'll have to see. I'm worried, Brian. I mean, we forget because we've had like, you know, five months of COVID, which seems like five years, like some eternity. It's really changed life. It's hard to remember back to to not that long ago, like in December, when all of our ERs were filled up with patients awaiting beds and people in hallways. Which is that's the huge, right? And, and if we had that, and and if we had COVID, sort of each of those uncontrolled by the types of measures that you know I've been suggesting may have worked greatly in places like New Zealand. We are. Well, there's a word for it that I can't say in a podcast, but we're going to be in a super bad position.
2: But, you know, what what was the secret in New Zealand? Uh, Is it just that they have a lot of sheep? You know, but uh, the reality is, no, but here's the reality. So uh, I saw an interesting study that came out of the uh, uh, public relations field. And they rated every country as to the effectiveness of message and how people understood that message and the top country in the world. Was New Zealand, and so you know, trying to get those messages that David and, and we all, especially in ID and public health, trying to get people to social distance, wear masks, you know, and not uh, sort of uh, run around and be in mass gatherings. You know, that's led them now to return to normal life, except they don't allow anyone in. Uh, David, Brian, you can't go there. They're not going to let anyone from the U.S. in to New Zealand. Now, you know, we have a much larger country. It's always tough to model large countries on small countries, but uh, communication and message is so important. And of course, we're, we're not doing a good job at that.
0: Oh, absolutely. This year, you know, interestingly, when this first came out, we were talking about here in the United States about banning, you know, people, you know, China from Europe, everything else, because we were this pristine. And now we are the ones that the rest of the world's like, whoa, no, you, you, you stay out. You can come over to the house, but you're gonna have to stay outside. Uh, because you can't come in because you're going to get everybody sick with all this stuff going on. Let's, let's look at flu itself. Now we've, we've been talking about, of course, and David you and I talked a lot about some of these treatments and things for COVID and such and how things are coming and how things are going. But at the same time, we have never been really good worldwide, not just this country worldwide with treating viruses We can prevent them in a lot of cases with vaccines and you know, for for certain types of viruses, but we really haven't been or hadn't been able to develop things like we do for antibiotics for many bacteria. We've got the antivirals, we've got the stuff out there, but really it may help some, but really hasn't, nothing has really been earth shattering in terms of improvement. Where are we right now with the availability of treatments um, and research behind that for influenza?
1: Well, we do have, we've had treatments for influenza, going back to amanadine and ramanadine. I don't know that they were used a lot. You know, I think, I think there's generally been an attitude that, you know, flu's something that most people can just suffer through and deal with, and maybe, maybe treatment wasn't prioritized. What really, what really sort of got attention to treatment and, um, and focusing on how treatment may importantly improve outcomes. In my opinion, just looking back, and Paul, I wonder your perspective, was the H1N1 outbreak in 2009. We were really worried. Like this was a new strain that the majority of the world's population didn't even have partial immunity to. Now we learned later that, you know, a similar strain in 19. in the 70s might protect some of the elderly, and that affected the epidemiology. But um, we were really worried. The initial reports from Mexico suggested like that half the infected people would wind up in the ICU or die. Now, it turned out that that the outcomes of, of that, uh, call it a pandemic, were actually pretty mild compared to seasonal flu, but we didn't know that. And we didn't have a vaccine uh, for several months. So I think that, I think that generated a, a lot of, a lot more interest in treatment and early treatment, especially in research into who is at risk, like, like uh, we were referring to earlier. And that really changed, I think, this, the focus and the uh, strength of recommendations for trying to identify high-risk people as early as possible and offer them treatment. Paul, what do you think? Was that a turning point?
2: Uh, Well, well, you know, I certainly, uh, once the the pandemic flu virus hit, everyone suddenly wanted to get immunized. Not everyone, but, you know, it was hard to be immunized and everyone was looking for it. People were very worried. You know, I had young kids at the time. And as you pointed out, David, this shifted the demographic. Young people were the ones at risk of dying, uh, not the elderly with this. So I think it heightened things, uh, you know. Part of the problem with uh, viruses, unlike bacteria, is, you know, the train has left the station for days. You know, uh, viruses aren't alive. They need to replicate in a host cell. So by the time you start getting symptoms, you know, they're pretty much chugging along. So trying to reverse that, it's a tough job, really, for any medicine that's... You know, a virus is producing an acute infection. So, you know, there's there's not been a fabulous track record there for respiratory viruses, but there are some drugs and tools that can have impact. But you just got to start it really early. Uh, the earlier you start these, and that's probably going to be true for COVID, even though. You know, remdesivir trials have been giving to people on day 7, 10 of illness. You know, we can start that earlier. You'll probably have more impact, but we don't know who's really going to do poorly. Same with influenza. We don't know who's going to do poorly or not. So we end up, for those at risk especially, you want to try to treat people. And uh, the downsides aren't bad because, for the most part, the side effects are pretty minor with these uh, respiratory
1: drugs. I think the other thing is we we develop better, less... Toxic antivirals. <laughs> that was another thing. Like so, amantidine. You know, these are these are these are drugs. for like Parkinsonism and and rimantidine. Uh, they had some pretty severe side effects, and they also you know lost their their activity against influenza strains. But those drugs were were not ideal. And then I think with the the new newer drugs we have, um, we should talk in generics. Oseltamivir. What's a generic for zanamivir. I forget.
2: It's zanamivir.
1: Oh, it's yeah, that's generic convenient. Generic Easy generic. to remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and then the baloxavir is the new one. So uh, you know, these are these are cleaner drugs. They're more active against current strains, and I think, and I and I think along with our better understanding of who's at risk and the uh, benefit of early recognition and treatment, that's brings us to where we are today, where this is a reasonable topic, even for you know, acute treatment junkies like emergency physicians, right? We want to like slam some TPA or, or you name it, right? Uh, give some antibiotics within an hour now, right? Um, so you know now influenza treatments serve on our list of things that we can do acutely to help some people at risk.
2: I don't know. Now, it, it is of interest just to mention in 2008 and 2009, uh, Oseltamivir um, didn't work against the flu strains that year. 98% of the flu strains were suddenly resistant. So the only drugs we had were amantadine and romantidine at the time. So I think, you know, that's still in the back pocket. Remember, it only treats flu A, not flu B. Um, so I, I, whether it's still being manufactured to any great Lengths. I, I don't even think neurologists use it, uh, amantidine an anymore for Parkinson's. So, I, you know, I, uh, well, I, I well, don't know the frequency, but, but for the moment, it's, it's off the table unless if, you know, resistance occurs. But now we have this other drug, Biloxpere, as an alternative, at least for oral treatment. Well, what
1: explained that, um, that sort of unique brief period of yeah. uh, inactivity?
2: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no one knows like it suddenly popped up everyone said oh it's because some countries use it really heavily if you look at the heaviest per capita use it's japan they use a lot of oseltamivir, beer and they thought oh you know did you remember well i don't know if you remember but there was a lot of cdc warning don't give it to healthy people because we really don't want resistant mer- uh to emerge with the flu strains that really hasn't happened you know we that one year it just disappeared probably because the virus wasn't that fit because of the resistant mutation, and then it reverted to tamvir sensitivity ever since uh, 2008. So, you know, I think we have to be on the watch. These viruses and mutations, as you might imagine, we're also watching COVID, uh, very unpredictable, can pivot on a dime. I mean, everyone thought the next thing to wipe out the planet would be another flu epidemic and here's coronavirus. So Well,
0: of course, Dr. Fauci is now saying that we need to be aware of this other flu virus that is currently brewing in China right now. So um, that'll, that'll give us if you had that for October, yeah. congratulations, if if, there you go. if you're
2: if you're not getting uh you know if you're getting deep restful sleep, we'll just throw another.
0: Yeah, we'll throw something else on there your worry list. list. And somebody today posted the um, the a large bird on the beach carrying a shark, and like, okay, who had sharks falling from the sky for the end of for Fourth of July weekend? So that give you an idea of if when we're recording this right now. Let's so let's talk about the active. So we've talked about some of the historical treatments and we've dabbled a little bit in terms of the current framework of treatments that are about uh, out there which agents when we go into flu season 2020 what type of agents classes of medications are, are we looking at for this coming year
1: oh I do take that
2: one sure yeah well so as i like to think of it the the ones that you probably are most familiar with fall in this class and neuraminidase inhibitors so oseltamivir beer has been around for a long time You know it's 75 milligrams twice a day for five days for acute treatment Uh, kids can get it weight-based dosing Uh, it's fda approved two two weeks of age or older so it can be used in pregnant women i think that's important uh, because a lot of people worry but it's a class b agent Uh, it's even given to neonates uh, just not fda approved So uh, the drug has a long track record, and and some would say, you know, it's not the best drug in the world. Um, You know, healthy people that usually get over this, gosh, it only really works if you take it early, less than 48 hours, right, for uncomplicated influenza. And then it buys you about a day uh, less of symptoms overall. Some observational data, which we can get into later, suggests that even for some people works after 48 hours, but a lot of people get tripped up by the 48 hour rule. And I I think that's a point of controversy, uh, which we'll get back to. But that's the oral drug. No one really uses Xenamivir, which David mentioned. Uh, That's an inhaled powder. You know, when you're sick with the virus, why do you want to be, you know, huffing a powder basically, you know? So that's rarely used. Interestingly, it's the most potent of the neuraminidase inhibitors. We'll even treat Oseltamivir-resistant mutants. Um, Paramivir is intravenous. I don't know if you guys have ever used it. Uh, Where we use it at Hopkins is in the ICU. Someone that's too sick to take oral meds or doesn't have a GI tract. So we we don't use it very much. But those all fall in the neuraminidase inhibitors. And then Biloxivir is a new kid on the block. Uh, FDA approved in uh, 2018 it's just a single uh dose though uh, it has a long half-life up to like 90 plus hours so you get a lot of mileage you know so for compliancy issues it's a single dose uh if you're over 80 kilos it's 80 milligrams that's how i remember it if you're 40 to 80 uh it's uh, 40 milligrams um and uh, uh it's fda approved so far in anyone 12 years of age or older so just adolescents and adults uh there's some kid studies around which we can talk about but uh a uh, pretty low side effect profile. The only thing that I think about when prescribing it really is oseltamivir has a lot of nausea, ten to twenty percent, sometimes also vomiting, diarrhea. Um, Baloxavir looks like it's about the same uh, overall as placebo in studies, so tends not to have a lot of adverse reactions.
0: With these medicines, and you know, now it's going to be a little bit of devil's advocate um, because if you look at the way emer- the emergency physicians and, and looking at the, of course, o- uh, oseltamivir, um, with that data that comes and goes in 24 hours, 12 hours, six hours, good, not good, helpful, not helpful. Um, is this research that we're seeing now, this this more recent research? Um, one, is it going to be is is it going to pass the muster of being clean uh, clean data that gets everything out there and show that benefit? for these patients in order for it to be something that we move into prime time when it comes to the acute treatment of flu when it comes to the emergency department
1: i mean i think the clinical trials and paul can comment on these more than i can are, are pretty similar to the registration ones for oseltamivir and the beneficial effects and beneficial effects associated with uh, early administration so that if you look you know at the, uh, the um, approval for oseltamivir, bloxivir. It it will say for patients who have symptoms uh, onset within 48 hours. So they're pretty similar. You would like to catch people early. Now, as as, um, we've sort of alluded to, there's observational data, again, not from RCTs, registration studies, um, that do suggest a potential benefit, especially to people who are at risk of complications, if given up to five days from the onset of symptoms. This is where um, I think emergency physicians should just be not only aware of this effect, but aware of these guidelines, because um, there will be bad outcomes associated with the flu, right? That's where we started. People die, right? And sometimes it's the flu that kills them. Sometimes it's the secondary bacterial infection. Sometimes it's both, or we don't know, or it just exacerbates an existing comorbidity like severe heart disease and the person dies. And so, especially for the people who are at risk, who we admit, you you have to really think about, and when I say think about, I also mean document, that you've uh, uh, considered guidelines and either given that treatment or make it clear that you've confronted this decision with the patient. Um, uh, there, um, you know, I hate to go here, but in reality, uh, there have been many instances where emergency physicians have been sued because of a bad outcome where they forgot to do that. And guidelines have been held up for a proxy uh, for juries to consider that as the standard of care. Now, these drugs, um, where we can debate the effectiveness after a symptom onset beyond 48 hours, they're pretty non-toxic. So there are, I think there are drugs that should be routinely given, considered, documented as such for the sickest patients, such as the ones we identify and whom we admit to the hospital. Paul, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, David, I'm, I'm really on board. Uh, you know, it's observational data, but the number, you know, there's high numbers in the studies. So... You know what what it does seem to do is reduce hospitalization some mortality benefit maybe decrease secondary bacterial infections in kids less otitis so um yeah it's not huge i think if someone you know is going to have a bad outcome from influenza i don't know if this drug's going to stop it if you're at day three or four or five but it will have some impact and I think if you're not giving it, as you said, uh, the optics in front of a jury, you know, are tough sometimes here. Yeah, let's get so, go ahead. Yeah, no, but I would just say it's also probably the right thing to do. But each day that passes, it has a diminishing effect, you know, probably by day five and six, we know from a CDC study, they stopped it. Uh, you know, they couldn't enroll enough patients on average, you know. When people come to the ED, uh, they're already at day five on average. And, you know, they got Oseltambier day six in this study by Ramirez. that was published in uh, CID, the Clinical Infectious Disease Journal, a little while ago. And, um, you know, there was just no difference between those that got placebo or Oseltambier. The other thing I'll just mention just quickly, so uh, no one's confused at the moment, there's no data for people in hospital with this uh, new oral drug, the Biloxivir. It's uh, only been really studied in the outpatient basis. So if you're discharging a patient, I think it's an option. There should be some inpatient studies coming out after this year, though.
1: Yeah, thanks. You know, you could tell. You could see that twinkle in my eye. Here's the deal. I mean, if you dig deep into the story about uh, studies of efficacy of influenza treatment, you can find some interesting and pretty corrupt stuff, like the manufacturer um, uh, deep-sixing negative trials that suggested that there were not fewer complications associated with treatment. And and you can also find divergence among expert groups like CDC, World Health Organization, you know, as to the uh, importance and effectiveness of these drugs. So, you know, we, I want to be fair with our listeners here to understand that, you know, what we're describing. Yes, it's true. There are these guidelines. We do think there is benefit benefit with these drugs, and especially you consider them. Um, in the sickest patients. It's not to say there isn't controversy. It still exists. There is.
0: Well, I think that's important. And I'm glad you actually uh, mentioned that because that is a lot of this going on. And of course, physicians always, and you know, when we talk about all this conversation, like, oh, physicians are just spokespeople for whatever it may be at the moment. You know, of course, we're all getting rich off of something, um, You know, whatever the conspiracy theory is at the moment. And it's like, you know, the, the highest skeptics, in medicine, our physicians don't trust anything, prove it, prove it again, prove it somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's, that's healthy. It's what ensures that we, that we push the, a rigorous scientific method that we make sure that everything that's out there is as safe and efficacious as possible. I mean, even talking about looking now at COVID-19 vaccines, you know, we just don't want you to rush something out there just because you let some water sit out in the in the driveway and start growing some stuff. And let's try putting it in there and see if it fixes COVID. Um, you know, the physicians are going to naturally have that that um, good um, skeptic nature when it comes to research. And I think that's very important. it's why um, I think it's important. And actually, on this one, we're going to list some of the research that's available out there for uh, the newer medication um that for flu. Um, but let's get into that treatment. You know, when we had going and you mentioned, uh, 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 Paul, you mentioned when we were getting into 2008 and 2009, Oztamivir, that uh, was kind of on the downslide because of that year that um, that we had that shift of course in 2009 2010 with h1n1 we had this huge boost cdc comes out and says this needs to happen um, that also we saw a huge boost in um, in vaccinations that year so actually the next year was actually a pretty tame year and since then we've seen a slow tapering uh, of not only vaccinations but also use of uh, treatments for uh, seasonal influenza virus uh, infections when for you gentlemen when somebody comes into our emergency department coming up this fall and into the winter, who do we need to consider for treatment and at what stage do we need to do that?
2: So uh, the way I think of it, you know, if you if you have a, a healthy person with uncomplicated influenza before 48 hours, you know, th- we don't see a lot of those people because they're <laughs> usually at home, right? Or or they're calling their doctor's office on the telephone. I don't know how often. Maybe you'll see it in the urgent care side of your EDs or something like this. I don't know, um, but you know that's where all the FDA studies are. That's where the most rigorous data is. And to be honest, with shortening one day of illness, uh, you sort of have to talk to the patient. Is it worth it to go out and get it? Spend money on a copay for that? You know, do you? Uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, someone's ill at home, and you don't want them to get the flu, and and there may be some benefit to starting drug there. Although that's not as clear at that stage. Um, I think it shifts, though, if you have people with the risk factors David had outlined, right? So there, even if it's, you're less than 48 hours, fantastic. You know, that means the drugs might even be more effective. But even if you're at day three, four or five, those people, even if you just uh, treat them and street them, uh, you know, uh, you'll want to give them a prescription or, or even start a drug in the emergency department if, you, if it's available to really get something in them. And, and see if you get some benefit. I mean, you, you know, from standard antibiotics, the earlier you start, the better for many infections. So, there, I think that's a little less, you know, that's a little more straightforward. You just have to remember that, you know, influenza is in the mix. You know, previously people would just start uh, uh, antibiotics for community acquired pneumonia and forget about town beer sometimes, right? Or, but. Uh, uh, now with infection control practices, pretty clear flu is going to be on the menu because you're going to get that result back along with COVID and probably RSV and so on as we go in this fall. So I think there'll be less of a need to really remember it front line. But, you know, we know from studies in China and in Europe who had uh, COVID earlier in the season with influenza, everyone was on oseltamivir in those studies, right? And, uh, and picking and choosing, we can sort of talk about which you might choose and why. Uh, but they both work equivalently well, in, in my view. So it sort of depends on some nuanced factors, but either drug's fine.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, and I wonder what you guys think of sort of how the dynamics of, of flu presentations and treatment might change in the context of COVID. So the first thing I wonder, which we kind of saw generally um, early on, was if people who seem to have the flu will be hesitant to present to emergency departments, um, just in general. Um, you know, maybe they think they have the flu. Uh, they're not sure. They could have COVID, but they want to stay away from a place that attracts more COVID patients, like at a medical facility. Uh, we did see that, right? Uh, we had far fewer visits. For other types of, of disease. Now it could work in the opposite direction. We have testing more available, so I don't know about that. The second thing I wonder about is like, you know, we know there will be some really bad outcomes, much more so with COVID than with influenza. So I'm I'm wondering if the threshold for, for both wanting treatment for the patient and for providing treatment by the provider will be lower. Right, Because if you're scared to death, you might get hospitalized or die, uh, more so with COVID. You may be more interested in getting any type of treatment, including antibiotics that you know, may not be indicated and uh, antibiotic stewards may have greater concern about. Um, I just wonder how this, easy, this equation will change as we you know, move into the flu season
2: yeah david i i think you're exactly right you had fewer visits but uh most data showed that death rates have spiked right so i think people are staying home and t- trying to tough it out and you know for the fragile people that just hadn't worked out so um yeah no i i think there'll be a lot of empiricism uh you know as we speed the tests of the ed you know there's the um gene expert tests and you know if you can get a a a multiplex with three and uh three viruses you get that information back in 30 minutes or 45 minutes i think will be less of a tendency that you really got to push hard i I think one of the key things that really just continue to be tough is that the covid testing you you missed 20 to 40 percent of the tests right uh influenza is much more accurate on upper airway samples. So I think we're always going to be wondering: Is this COVID? And people are going to be on infection control maneuvers. But uh, hopefully, we can get a flu signal early, uh, so you're you're not you know pounding the community acquired pneumonia drugs and oseltamvir at least in the first day or two when it looks pretty clearly like a viral
1: illness. Here's what I think. I think uh, you may not like to hear this, but uh, but it would make sense to me. Like ERs are going to be jammed. Right. And while it might sound like a short amount of time, 45 minutes, which is, I would say, idealized as a turnaround time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you're right. Right. Because like, you know, maybe once it gets to the lab, it's 45 minutes or, you know, then you got to get the patient, you got to collect it. You have to collect it safely. Like you don't know if they have COVID flu, whatever. Um, uh i suspect the, the er's will be so jammed up that we will be like look you want you want some flu treatment course of antibiotics here you go that's what we've got i mean uh, you know unless, uh, you know there's some unanticipated treatment for early COVID infection you know that we don't i don't realize yet but um i, I think that's what'll happen because we'll have to get people out of there to clear room to take care of really sick people. And there will be a lot, lot of really sick people.
0: I see it going a couple of ways. I mean, either we're going to do, just like we saw earlier season where, you know, folks are going to be nervous, just as you mentioned, uh, David, about the folks kind of remaining out of the ER because of the, that fear of, of COVID. And so then we're gonna see more complicated later presentations, just like we are of, of strokes and heart attacks and all that stuff now. Um, Or, you know, just the opposite where they present earlier because of that concern for COVID, because there is still a fear of COVID that is more than that of flu. Everybody's flu is just the flu. You know, it's just a little minor illness. And of course, the dead men tell no tales. And so the folks that that have the bad outcomes from flu can't tell you about it. Uh, But also that potential that we're going to see a huge spike again, because we've seen a little bit of downward trend on the use of telehealth. I think the telehealth likely in the fall with flu will probably spike again as folks look for those treatments to get those prescriptions without having to present to the emergency department. So I think we'll likely see that telehealth you know, component uh, pick up once again. Let's bring it home, guys. Let's, uh, let's talk about our, our summaries and take home messages. We've seen that, you know, of course, flu is going to be big this year. Um, of course as it is every single uh, every single year we've got a few treatments out there definitely under 48 hour consideration earlier the better and then that consideration uh, dr talon as you mentioned with that higher risk population maybe a little bit further out so let's get you guys closing messages on flu season 2020 2021 coming up dr talon
1: closing messages um uh, if you've got six months of vacation due you might save it until the fall and winter of this coming year.
0: <laughs> so you're saying there's a sabbatical.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, if you got it on the books, you might want to look at that. Um, I would suggest, you know, seeing if you can quarantine for 14 days and then taking your vacation in New Zealand. So that's one of my <laughs> first recommendations. <laughs> my second one is, um, you know, realize there's, effective influenza treatment and uh, these guidelines, which uh, uh, are of growing importance to optimize outcomes because uh, outcomes are looking worse for flu-like illness um, that may also be or or alternatively be caused by COVID, right? In in particular, it's important to recognize those high-risk groups and remember that these are important candidates for treatment. Um, and, um, and I think those are my, those are my two main points.
0: See in New Al- Zealand. Al- uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound like we're going to get to go there. So that nor Europe uh, anytime soon. So Dr. Alwater.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Ryan, a, a couple of things maybe that we didn't really dig into. I-, I would just probably add to closing here, you know, flu diagnostics. Uh, if you have the molecular tests, you could trust them pretty much. If they're positive, you can trust them if they're negative in terms of understanding of the flu. If you're still using their rapid antigen test, the so-called RIDTs, they're not going to, you know, if that's negative, you can't really trust it uh, in terms of ruling out influenza. The second thing, when you're thinking about if you're going to use an anti-influenza drug, as I said, I wouldn't really overthink it. Uh, Oseltamivir's uh, works. Um, uh, uh works as well. Uh, we didn't mention this, but one of the studies, it actually is FDA approved now, Ryan, for the high-risk group that David talked about, which Oseltamivir never got. So it's actually approved in that group, and the study actually did a better job against influenza B than A. Uh, interestingly, Oseltamivir was the same as uh uh, placebo in that group. So it may be a little bit better against flu A, and it also shuts down shedding a lot faster because it, it works earlier in the viral life cycle in the cell. So unlike uh, uh, oseltamivir, it does shut it off maybe two days much more effectively. Maybe that's important sometimes if you have somebody at home with, uh, you know, high risk uh, exposures and so on. So, you know, um, those are just some of the things I think about, you know, it's uh, compliance a little bit, one one dose versus five days. You do have uh, some nausea more with Oseltavir. Those are some of the key points uh, in addition to what David is nicely outlined,
1: It may be one additional thing that's more emergency department focused, but I guess it could apply to offices, urgent cares is, um, you know, we've talked about timing seems to be important in terms of the effectiveness of these drugs. So it might not be a bad practice. We do this with antibiotics, or, you know, it's more on our mind, but giving the first dose or the dose in the emergency department is really going to shave a lot of time between when that patient gets through the discharge process and eventually makes it to a pharmacy. So you might think about giving that first dose or the dose if it's a uh, uh, why you've got the patient there.
0: Now, you guys mentioned, and one thing I wanted to ask, um, you know, there was, there's was, there been a move over the last few years with oseltamivir in terms of a preventative, you know, so I've got flu, I come in, give it to other family members, decrease that risk of contracting, you know, even potential for there. And, and Dr. Alward, you actually mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast uh, that that fact. Is there any research or data thus far on biloxivir for that use as well?
2: So yeah, uh, there is, it doesn't have an FDA approval for it. That data has been put up to the FDA. They're gonna look at it this fall for approval. It looks like it works as well as Oseltamvir. You get about an 80 to 90% reduction in uh, uh, people getting that if you use it for prophylaxis. Of course, that group are people that are at high risk, not immunized and so on. Uh, There's also some pediatric data. So um, that also is gonna be in front of the FDA so that the, the kids under 12, um, whether the drug uh, could be used there. So, um, as along with uh, hospital treatment studies. So, you know, I think there'll be more and there'll be more options and considerations we'll see. And I'll just also end by saying, people are looking at combination therapy. Do you use Osutamibir? and beer together is that actually more effective and help reduce some problems with resistance and so on so uh, a lot of interest in influenza uh, therapeutics because it is so common of course now we got a, a a big competitor with covid which has even more interest at the moment and rightly so because it is about anywhere from six to 10, 12 times worse than influenza.
0: So a lot of information out there, Make uh, I encourage everybody to out there, before we get to flu season, go check out that research that's out there, the recommendations, the guidelines. Um, of course, the on-label on and off-label, we've talked about a little bit of both, but the on-label, of course, and then uh, looking deeper. And of course, we, we expect to see some of those Um, additions uh, coming up soon as the FDA looks into it coming into this year. So I've been discussing uh, with uh, two-time a COVID appearance by Dr. David Tallon. Um, always enjoy uh, information from UCLA School of Medicine and Dr. Pa- uh, Paul Alwater. Um He's from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and uh, I'm Ryan Stanton. I'm here in the Jessamine County, Tennessee, uh, Jessamine County, Kentucky. Uh, nothing terribly exciting. No uh, large, uh, no large uh, academic centers uh, in my little county here. So um, just bringing it home for you guys. How can folks get more information? if uh, if they have any questions or thoughts coming up into the uh, flu season dr town
1: well i would contact dr ryan stem
0: directly uh, <laughs> and then i will immediately forward it to one of you guys first. my friend maria haig who's on the bottom right of, corner of this will immediately send it to one of you guys
1: twitter uh he he likes his likes and doesn't like his dislikes i'll tell you that much <laughs> well uh yeah i mean you can you can find me Um, You know, I'm not, I don't have like a Twitter handle that I use regularly or Facebook, but you can probably find me on the UCLA website um, under, you know, very old faculty members. I think they have a category for that. And if you, if you look through there, uh, you'll probably find a a younger than I currently appear picture. And um, don't be confused by that. That's, that's actually me.
0: Does it run on MS DOS? Is that how we know that it's uh, the older what's version? Uh, What'd you say? Yeah, floppy disks, floppy disks. MS DOS. And... Kids, you don't understand the whole struggle of C slash backslash directory, all that other stuff of how do you get your game, King's Quest 6, on how do you actually open a game with all of that coding? Dr. Awarder?
2: Yeah, hi. Uh, uh, Paul Alwarder. Uh, I'll give you my email. It's P A U W A E R T at J H. M is at edu. Happy to uh, try to help answer questions. I'll, I'll say also that uh, CUC actually has, and their respiratory division, flu division, some great information, FAQs. Uh, they update things on real time there that for antivirals and diagnostics, and also the flu view. Well, you know, in the past, you'd look at flu view to figure out if it's in your community. Or are you going to make some empiric decisions on flu treatment? Uh, now, with COVID, of course, it's you know, you gotta sort of look at uh, uh, both pictures, but uh, to me, that's where I have always looked uh, for flu information. Actually, you know, Johns
1: Hopkins has you know great information on their website, especially about COVID. But I always wondered about Johns Hopkins, and um, you know, how did how how was Johns Hopkins? How was the name Johns? I never see that again. Um, is does any was that the real name of this individual and? Yeah. and that the only time Johns was was put in plural form it seemed like for someone's first name it, just, it, are yeah. any of your children named Johns is what i'm asking you
2: yeah uh, yeah no thought strongly about it but uh yeah, sort of uh, thought otherwise yeah no Johns Hopkins uh, was a 19th century merchant bachelor uh and uh, left most of his uh wealth uh to found the university modeled on sort of a German research university, which was very different than other models at the time. So, uh, yeah, it's John's. Uh, uh, my favorite story was um, one time on April 1st, there was a photo, we had this big Johns Hopkins spelled out in big white letters. You can see from the Amtrak train coming down from New York to, to DC. And they, someone had Photoshopped in a crane, lifting up the S and saying, we give up. Everyone calls us John Hopkins. So, uh, you know, but we're, we're sticking with the S for now.
1: All right. It has nothing to do with like STD research or anything. Like oh,
2: that. we, we got a lot of that involved.
1: I'm
2: sure this will be,
1: you know, sort of, you know, featured on the uh, podcast. So, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! You got a it lot stayed. of useless information
0: from us. No, that's the that's the best part. It's like we're sitting around. It's like we're sitting around a table having a conversation. That's the best type of podcasting, right there. If it's just, well, this isn't a this isn't a just a, a straight up cut dry lecture. This is going to be a good conversation. Now that you know. Whether there's supposed to be an apostrophe in John's or whether it's John or whatever it may be, and we know how Dr. Alberter ended up there because it was based off the German research model. And so apparently you have to have a German heritage uh, to be there of some sort. And um, you know, as for me, I'm just here. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me at your everydaymedicine at gmail.com, your medicine at gmail.com, or at everydaymed on Twitter. And gentlemen, I really appreciate it. Great conversation uh, today. And I hope everybody out there, keep your eye on the ball, uh, but don't get distracted because the next pitch may be a curveball and it's going to be flu 2020 uh, as it comes in. And it's going to be here just around the corner. And for uh, all of us here, I appreciate it. And thanks for tuning in to ASAP Frontline.